Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And it's a couple of seconds to four o'clock and it's time for Tuesday Home Time with Jan Bartlett. Thanks to Acting Up. This week... Jacob Grech takes on Canberra. The results of the Sri Lankan elections with Dr. Brian Singaratna. Spirit of Eureka, celebrating 165 years since the Eureka Rebellion. It's coming up on the 28th of November. Part two of my interview with Philippines-Australian activist May Kotsakis. The Bougainville referendum. It's coming up beginning this weekend and it goes for a couple of weeks and to talk about that is Nick McClellan, broadcaster and journalist. But first of all, Mr Kevin Healy and he's had another week. A week, Jane Lister, when True Blue Aussie banned a couple of evil China, except in uh, trade when it's good China, government members from visiting True Blue Aussie after these evil government members criticised True Blue Aussie's human rights record, as if our humane treatment of no proper papers, queue-jumping illegal boat people on idyllic Pacific Island concentration camps, our humane economic interests over our Pacific neighbours sinking into the briny, along with humane domestic flood, drought, fire, destruction, humane treatment of the terranullius people who don't even exist and therefore have no human rights to be abused, as small examples, represent an abuse of human rights causing righteous anger in our parliament, including cream of Trublawazi youth, life of the party, fun to be with, man in uniform, trained killer, Andrew, hasty to war, who, after using parliament to attack, in turn, China's human rights record, in his job as, quote, politician, then said evil China was being political. Amazing how politicians can get so upset about people being political. And Trubler was he plans to ban certain foreign financing of tertiary research. Ah, like the ubiquitous US of the UN of the US of the world, merchants of death, train killer machine, investing heavily in our universities, research and curriculum. No, no, not in valuable, important research in projects for peace. No, no, we... We more had, say, evil China in mind. And the US authors warned Trublawazi that evil China's dominance in increasingly valuable rare metals, rare earth, was a threat to peace. And so Trublawazi has taken its orders to unite with the US of to work on that very serious problem, naturally with government money. And our big supremo scuttled them more lash than summed it up. And I hate to, indeed, far be it for me to suggest our big supremo got it wrong, but Scuttle them explained, we don't want to adopt their system and they don't want to adopt our system. Rubbish, Scuttle them, rubbish. They're bigger capitalists than we are. On the other hand, I do have to agree with one of Scuttlebem's fellow lovers of the dear baby Jesus, Israel, Falau, my Bible, who conceded extreme weather conditions are occurring far more regularly. Spot on, Israel. Here's a mate of Scuttlebem who is aware that climate change is such a thing. 
although in fairness to Israel, like Scuttle them and that lot, he knows anthropogenic pollution has nothing to do with it. It's theological. Anthropogenic theological pollution that so upsets the dear baby Jesus, the wickedness of a population that voted to condone evil, evil homosexuality and non-heterosexual sex in all its theologically polluting forms. Polluting the dear baby's intention that every sexual encounter should result in a dear little baby created in the image of the dear baby Jesus, which might explain what they've got against women, because women have the audacity to be born not quite in the image. Evil women wanting to have a bit of a say over what happens to their bodies. Heaven forbid! Well, it does, but they ignore that, and as our regular spokesperson for the dear baby, Senator Erica Betts on the bosses, says... Israel's right to his scientifically proven theory that floods and drought and fire and destruction are down to the wrath of God will be protected by this essential freedom of religion, brackets Christianity, bill. And of course, protect people's rights not to be attacked in turn by Israel, Eric. Certainly not. Uh, that would contravene Israel's dear baby Jesus' right to express his love thy neighbour, dear baby Jesus' religious views. On such matters, the big Aussie, of whom we're also proud, PHP for bloody huge profits, bloody huge polluter, boasted about its commitment to the environment, to addressing climate change, if there is such a thing, at its AGM last week, and same week announced it would increase its spending on more frying the planet reduction, I hear. Well, no, no. Increased spending on oil and gas production. Oil will remain attractive for decades, while advantage gas assets will offer robust returns throughout the commodity cycle. Robust returns, and surely they'll then be able to spend more on their commitment to addressing the environment. And the flying kangaroo, which used to be owned by the inefficient bloated hand of the public purse, announced proudly it would reduce its carbon emissions to zero by as soon as 2050, optimistically assuming there'll still be a livable planet by offsets, which is all very well, but what will be coming out of all those exhausts? Still, it just goes to show that, like everything else, the market will solve the problem. We never thought we'd have to criticise the Minister for keeping us secure and overseeing concentration camps, raise a wire and sink the boats, Constable Peter Duffer, but shame, Constable Duffer, shame. How did you let that seditious seditious writer Baruz Bushani escaped not only and an no proper papers a legal queue-jumping boat person, but now an escapee, so ungrateful for Troubler-Wazzy's warm hospitality, providing him with a new life on Manus Island and Port Moresby, that he wrote a bloody book kicking Troubler-Wazzy in the face, kicking us in the face, and now, with the collaboration of an, of an accomplice, the long-haired commie soft on a legal no-proper-papers New Zealand, he's turned up at some literary do and says he won't go back to prison. Shame, Constable Duffer, shame. How could you let this happen? You're supposed to keep us secure. Launch extradition proceedings immediately and let's hope their courts don't protect the escapee like the Zion courts protect alleged pedophiles. A business as usual and a first up in the Northern Territory. Yet another Terranullius person killed by the 
sorry, the police, showing how effective the Aboriginal deaths in custody recommendations were all those years ago. But the first, well, two firsts, a copper has been charged with murder and against all precedents, an alleged murderer has been granted bail, showing that police who murder people are good, safe, reliable murderers. They said he was granted bail for his own protection and the union and the government said the people must sympathise with the police at this time, arrested for just doing his job. And so perhaps now all those remand prisoners, including murderers, being kept in solitary or whatever in prison for their protection should use this as an example, a precedent to be granted bail, although releasing the copper into an angry community just mightn't have been the safest thing. Not sure why he couldn't have been protected in remand. Safest thing other than they also whisked him away from the area altogether, two states away, showing how compassionate the police can be to an alleged murderer. But I feel terrible. Huge apology to, super, huge apology to supermarket giant kills value. Last week I said its generous offer of quality European wine glasses, quote, worked out at $900 to $1,000 a glass, and it would be $900 to $1,000 cheaper to just buy the bloody glass and, and heaps healthier, all that processed rubbish. Well, I misread the fine print. It wasn't $30 for one credit, it was $20. So the real cost per glass is only a mere $700, a real giveaway. But notice the ad for that offer seems to have disappeared. Maybe the punters are heaps smarter than Kill's Value takes them for. Mentioned last week how the evil unions were trying to equate the proposed penalties under Smash the Evil Unions Bill with the non-penalties for caring employers inadvertently underpaying their workers, like this week's chapter, Mining Industry Work Hire Company Skilled Workforce Solutions, accused of underpaying workers by a mere 45 mil, showing how difficult it must be to comprehend the relevant awards just so complicated, but also just one more. It's now so passe. There's almost one a day. So much inadvertency, caring employers objecting quite properly to this epidemic being labelled or described as wage theft and little questions like how come half the inadvertent aren't overpaying workers given under the under and over should be equal and not 100% to 0%. But now there's an equal, if not greater threat. The state socialist industrial manslaughter legislation, which could send caring employers to jail and impose huge fines, almost as severe as the fines evil unions rightly suffer by raising matters like, or say like health and safety, or illegally entering a workplace just because workers are a bit concerned over safety. And the usual suspect chambers of uh, profits and are uh, distraught at the possibility that good caring employers could suffer for no fault of their own. As the master builders' profits screamed, they cared deeply for their workers, but why should an employer be prosecuted when the legislation placed too much responsibility for safety on caring employers and not on workers? Good point. Look, surely the legislation should be, should be aimed at evil unions, charge them with not doing their job and remove a pathetic defence like it's not legal for them to enter a workplace. 
Oh, and the master builders were also upset that they had discussed the legislation with the government and their proposals had been ignored. And what did you propose? That the legislation be scrapped. This is a government that does not listen. So finally, despite all that, I wouldn't be holding my breath waiting to see the first caring employer taken to the cells for killing a worker he, she, it so cares about. Good afternoon. And you'll be able to hear Mr Kevin Healy tomorrow morning at nine with City Limits. I'm Helen Razor, but that's deeply irrelevant. What is relevant is that you're listening to 3CR on, what's that frequency again, dear? 855, I told you, Helen. 855. And what is relevant is that you're not listening to that other crap. So well done. I was speaking on Friday with Jacob Greck, activist and broadcaster. The last time I saw him was mid-afternoon, Sunday week ago, and he said he had to leave the meeting as he was going to Canberra. And I assume correctly he wasn't going as a tourist. Where did it all start? Well, we got to Canberra, as you know, um, late at night, and we had a bit of a meeting, and then we got together and um, thought we'd go and do a bit of a presence at uh, um, 11 o'clock Remembrance Day commemoration in Canberra at the, at the War Memorial. So we just went there. Um, the Medical Association Prevention of War always do, a, always do their own thing there about um, arms companies supporting the War Memorial. But we had a separate thing there with a big banner saying, lest we remember, um, because it seems to us that while they say, lest we forget, it seems like they've forgotten about the horrors of war. So we just wanted to have a big sign saying, lest we remember, and ev- as everybody went past, we were, we were there, and um, that was all well and good. And then we um, proceeded to Parliament House, where we had a bit of a a march from the old Parliament House to the new Parliament House, just a small one. And who's we? People from Melbourne for WikiLeaks. There were one, two, three, four of us there, a friend of mine, my my brother from Tasmania, and then a couple of people from Queensland, um, from Wage Peace, and um, also from Wage Peace, a couple of people from Canberra. We got to Parliament House. What time of day is this? This is about midday, 12.30. And um, had a bit of a rally up there. The little rally and our banner and all that kind of stuff ourselves, we couldn't tell, we couldn't say at the time, but were really a diversion for Eli and um, assisted by Rain to get on top of Parliament House, where he draped a free Julian Assange banner across the coat of arms from the, the what they call the Great Veranda at the very front of Parliament House there. Explain how you get up on the roof of Parliament House. Well, years ago, my mate Gareth Smith and I got up there, 2000 or 99, about then after the, um, the Timor election, when he was brought back after being an election observer. Um, and we went just across the top of the hill. From the top of the hill, you can walk out onto a bit of a marble slab, and then you've got to walk across some fairly dicey, marble lintel that's just suspended in space so you don't want to do it if you're afraid of heights or if you're uh, a little bit accident prone and um, then onto the glass onto a glass ceiling and across to the top but um, then years ago or maybe four years ago three four years ago some um, refugee campaigners got up there and put a banner up there 
and since that time they've put on a huge, I think it's 10 foot, maybe 12 foot fence to stop people getting to the top of the hill. So you supposedly can't get up there to get to the top of the building anymore. Did you cut a hole in the fence? No, I climbed it. Climbed it. As I said to the, the copper when he, um, he was surprised that we managed, that he managed to climb that fence. I said, well actually we, fence is a good thing because if you can't scale that fence you really shouldn't be crawling over the glass roof of Parliament House. It was, it was like a test. Keep the enthusiastic kiddies away but just leave it for the professionals, you know, which, which led to the, um, great, um, headline of the story in the Canberra Times the next day that just said we're going to need a bigger fence you know it's the as an arms trade activist I can tell you as soon as someone builds a fence someone works out a way to get through it and it doesn't matter how big a fence they'll build we'll get through it tell us a bit more about the banner the banner just had a picture of Julian with a um, a US flag what's a gag around his mouth that said free Julian Sands don't extradite uh, no extradition it was good because, as you're aware, there are people in Parliament now um, who have formed a little group to support Julian, to demand that he comes home. And um, Peter Wish Wilson, um, the next day, I think it was, it was a Tuesday, might have been a Wednesday, tabled 200,000 signatures on a petition urging the Australian government to intervene and bring Julian home. Because regardless of the Australian government saying they can't, they can. They can do something. But they're just refusing to for all the reasons you know and I know and our listeners know um, that Australia's not going to do anything to upset either Great Britain or the United States. And what were the rest of you doing while this, these two? Is it two up on the roof? Uh, only one. Only one. Yeah. What, what were the rest of you doing while this person was up on the roof? Once he got up on the roof, um, we came down to support him and just keep people away and a few people just held a huge banner saying... Um, what did it say? Jail of war criminals free the whistleblowers, which is very appropriate for Remembrance Day, and just made sure the police were treating him right, right and acted as police liaison and negotiated his um, his safe, what's the word, departure from the roof with the police. Parliament was sitting? Pa- Senate was sitting. Senate was sitting. Senate was sitting, yeah. Lots Senate. of senators come out to say hello? No senators came out to say hello. We did ring their offices, but no, no one came. But look... In their defence... But Peter Wish Wilson would have been in there, shouldn't he? Well, he would have been, but at the same time, I would have felt really bad had Peter Wish Wilson came out and then a um, division be called for the Ensuring Integrity Bill and, you know, it's um, they're in there for their, what's, what's the word, their core business of stopping this government's fascist legislation from getting through. And um, I, and I'm sure Julian, would have felt like shit if he knew that a bill like that went through because one of the senators voting against it was out there so patting us on the back, you know, so that was important. So after a little while you toddled off and where'd you toddle off to? After a little while after that we went to DFAT, uh, Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, put in a bit of a, geez, we were busy, put in a bit of a um, a blockade, not a blockade, but... um, stood in front of their doorways with huge banners as all their workers were leaving for the shuttle buses and the car parks and all the rest of it, handing out leaflets with a banner and a bit of music and the rest of it. And that was good just to make people aware. And then the next day we went to, um, what did we do? Alexander Downer was speaking at the National Press Club. You didn't go and listen to him, did you? No, we didn't go and listen to him, mate. 
I had a PA on the back of the ute that was so loud that um, we made sure that all the people who were supposed to be listening to him were actually listening to us. <laughs> and Alexander Down, we were there with people because um, David McBride is currently in court as well. And so we were there supporting him. We had dinner with him the night before, basically to support whistleblowers and point out Alexander Downer's role in, um, well, bugging the East Timor Embassy. He was foreign minister at the time. And, you know, people need to remember that it wasn't just, I mean, it's, it's not too complicated for um, 3CR listeners, but there's the Australian government bugging the East Timorese cabinet's discussion rooms is one thing. It's, it's evil, but we know that governments all around the world bug each other's offices. This is just part of day-to-day diplomatic life. But the really, I guess, insidious thing about this, the thing that made even Witness K, who, who is currently up on charges, and let's not forget that Witness K was a senior ASIS agent He's not someone who really had a problem with bugging other countries. He's not a 3CR subscriber, let's say. But even going too far for him was that the reason um, they were bugging the officers was to find out what the East Timorese government, Timor-Leste's government's bottom line was on the gas and on the negotiations for the for the gas in the in the Timor Sea. So knowing their bottom line gave us a a stronger negotiating, you can call it negotiating, a stronger coercive position on the deal we made with East Timor. And that's insidious enough, but it gets even worse because the, the, the people who were going to profit from that was not the Australian government or the Australian people, but Woodside Petroleum. And then as soon as Alexander Downer leaves politics, he goes and gets a job with Woodside Petroleum. Could you imagine it's, he's, he's used our resources to spy on a friendly nation that we were supposedly helping under the guise of aid, foreign aid, like all of us always want a bigger foreign aid budget, but we've got to be careful what the foreign aid actually does. And then he goes and gets a job, millions of dollars he would have been paid, out of the money that Woodside made. He's there making money as a consultant, an employee basically of Woodside Petroleum, making a mozza um, over the work he did as foreign minister. And some would say that, all right, while he... You've got to be careful what I say there. I'm not suggesting in any way, shape or form he was um, getting backhanders for Woodside while he was a member of parliament. But I believe he always worked in a way which supported the big end of town and supported the companies in the coal and gas extraction industries. I don't believe it's any surprise that after he um, finished politics, he kept going in, um, in politics, let's say. But, you know, there, there are rules about this. There are rules about this. You know, we call them the revolving door of government ministers and government members moving straight into industry in areas that they used to, you know, Kim Beasley did it former defence minister, then he went to Lockheed Martin. And, you know, Kate Lundy, um, who I'll talk about later because that was the next day's actions in Canberra. But, um, yeah, but we were pointing out um, Alexander Downer's crimes, as well as the whole Witness K Timor debacle. He was also, let's remember, at the start, people attacked WikiLeaks and attacked Julian 
because he supposedly dropped a whole lot of um, worked with the Russian government in dropping emails or Hillary Clinton's emails just before the US election. Now that whole story about Russian collusion started with Alexander Downer serendipitously meeting the bloke George Papadopoulos, who was um, one of Trump's energy advisors, in a bar in London, um, set up by a bloke named Joe Mifsud, who people called a Russian agent, but when you look at all his background, he's actually on the UK Intelligence Advisory Board, whatever the hell that is. And um, it all started from Alexander Downer, and now Alexander Downer's in the National Press Club, saying that the Australian government shouldn't and can't intervene on Julian Assange. So the nasty thing about Alex is that, and look, there's a lot of nasty things about Alex. Let's say he's, you know, born to rule mentality, went to school in England, the best private schools. He's, he's the closest Australia has got to blue blood, let's say. And, and he must be really irking now that his daughter's just lost didn't win the seat, didn't win the election for for his seat. But the nasty thing about Alex is that as well as doing those things in Parliament, he's also always been involved on the sidelines with companies, with other organisations. At the same time that he dropped the... He created or initiated all the rot about WikiLeaks working with Russia... Just before that, he donated $25 million to the Clinton Foundation for a project in Papua, which turned out to be a scam. He's got his fingers. He's one of those people who's connected everywhere. And so that's why we, we, we gave him a bit of a touch-up at the National Press Club and um, made sure that um, he was uncomfortable throughout the whole thing and basically forced him to, to hide. He had to stay in the National Press Club for quite a long time Afterwards, because we didn't leave for a long time, waiting for him, waiting for him to leave. Just wondering about the trial of David McBride, that the fact that, and he's also the son of McBride, who yeah, who blew the whistle blew the on Glutamite. Yeah, yeah. Um, that the, the witness K is pleaded guilty, and yeah, McBride's pleading not guilty. He's pleading not guilty. How does, that, how does that work? I'm not sure. I don't, I've got to be honest, I don't know the intricacies of that court case, Chad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I know witness case pleaded guilty. Guilty, I think, with, what's the word, with mitigation. Right. Yeah. And David, David McBride is saying, nah, not having a bar of it. it must um, be making it more difficult for him, though. They're making, look, he was really, I had dinner with him on Monday night, and he was stressed. He was stressed, you know, when he's sitting there with his with his puppy dog on his lap and he's stroking his puppy dog a lot. And, you know, this is a bloke, again, this is not a bloke who was a 3CR subscriber, all right? And he's, he's saying he's coming to realise his, his education, his political education is happening in leaps and bounds. Because as, as it is, look, I've got a common theme when someone wins us about a particular issue to do with a, a bank or a government department or anything else with me, my automatic response is, oh, what, have you got a problem with capitalism? And most people actually don't have. And by saying that, what I'm trying to say is, well, what do you expect? This is the natural result. It's the only way it could go. And um, David is actually, through his court case and seeing everything else, just going deeper and deeper and deeper. He's almost like, you could almost see uh, the headlights in his eyes 
as is understanding how deep the onions go, you know? Yeah. Who else did you go and visit? Well, then the next days we went and did a bit of street theatre and a bit of a blockade, a bit of drum up of a, a mob called Electro Optic Systems. Now, Electro Optic Systems are an Australian arms company. They're based in Canberra and they have sold a million dollars worth of remote weapons targeting technology to the Saudi government that's being used in Yemen and about half a billion to the UAE which is also being used in Yemen. Now, the, again, the nasty thing about their systems, they're not actually selling guns, they're selling a targeting system. So what it does is it, in their words, increases their own weapons lethality. So it just makes it easier for them to target things remotely. So you get a gun, you put it on their turret, and then you can sit on the other side of the planet, if you want, and operate it and aim just like a you know, a computer game that the kids play, you know, and blow things up from there. And this is um, this is the Australian government, because you've got to remember the Australian government has to approve these exports. And um, they've approved these exports to the Saudis, to the Emirates, to take part in um, uh, what's been described by the United Nations as one of the largest man-made humanitarian crises ever. Not in the last 10 years, not this century, ever is what we're seeing in Yemen. So this is the Australian government. And um, in particular, um, on the back of our little talk about Alexander Downer, there's one Australian, former Australian senator, Kate Lundy. And Kate Lundy is is on the board of Electro-Optic Systems. Now, she started life um, working on building sites. She got a job first off as a delegate, then I think a steward, then an organiser with the BWIU, Socialist left of the Labor Party. I was pretty impressed, I've got to say, when she was first elected with some of the things she came out with. But since then, she's been working a lot with industry. And she's just like the Andrews government has got a bloke named John O'Callaghan, who's our defence industry ambassador. The ACT government has got Kate Lundy to spruik its defence industries around the world. So you've got a former settler who's now on the board collecting an income from one of the largest homegrown Australian arms companies who's also being paid by the government to spruik that arms company's sales. I mean, where does this go? This, this is sort of like, this reminds me of back in the... Back in the Middle Ages when, you know, someone like Charles V had four great-grandparents, you know. I mean, they're so commercially and politically incestuous that it's it's even surprising me how far they go. So we gave them a bit of a touch-up. Finally, Jacob, you've been in contact with Julian's father. Yeah, I've been in contact with Julian's father. He's doing a lot of work around Europe, getting the troops together, building campaigns like the... um, rallies all over Europe. Melbourne, strangely enough, is the the place in the world where we get the smallest rallies because the disinformation campaign has been so strong. But we're getting rallies of hundreds of people in most major European cities, so they're not getting much publicity. The International Journalists Association have now um, started up a campaign. They always supported Julian, but they've started a campaign to um, demand his release. So he's doing a lot of good work there. And we're also trying to bring it here. We've got Jen Robinson visiting, his lawyer visiting um, Melbourne next week. Um, Christian Hafnerson, the um, CEO of WikiLeaks, will be here next month. 
Pamela Anderson will be in Australia next month as well, so we're trying to build a campaign here. We've got the parliamentarians on support. We've got the petition tabled. And, you know, we got word with Julian himself, and, you know, it was particularly, I guess, uh, part of... Part of the reason we do what we do here is we know that Julian's watching and we know that it lifts his spirits. And we got word from Julian um, saying that he'd heard about the banner drop on the top of Parliament House and um, his lawyer who got word back to us said it made him smile. So that's worth doing. Absolutely. If you want to hear some more of Jacob Gregg, the place to be here is, again, it's 3CR on Friday afternoon at five o'clock and the program is called A Friday Rave and that's Jacob Grek. 3CR, 4.32, Melbourne Community Radio Station. Last Saturday, Sri Lankans voted to elect a new president seven months after the bombing on Easter Sunday, which claimed the lives of more than 250 people. There were 35 candidates, but only two were in the running for president, but not the ousted President Sirisena. The first two runners were Gota Rajapaksa, who was Defence Secretary under his brother's rule, when tens of thousands of mainly Tamils went missing between 2005 and 2015. The other front runner, Saith Premadesa, who promised that if he was elected, he would hire the army chief who defeated the Tamils, Sarah Fonseca, to oversee national security. Dr Brian Siniratna, Sri Lankan-Australian human rights activist of over 60 years, has been following the elections. And Brian, we have the result. The Terminator. He has been confirmed. I have done a lot of research over the last 24 hours and I cannot find any country in any part of the world that has appointed a man of that caliber and that record as a president, not even the United States. I guess uh, Sri Lankans are bad. And does it affect me? Yes, it does. Because my work as a consultant physician will increase markedly because there will be a flood of refugees escaping from the north and the east and even from the south. And I don't blame them. The point is, the first is, you have to, they have to establish whether he is eligible to be president. He's an American citizen. He says that he has uh, relinquished his American citizenship. I have not seen definite evidence of that. And if that is the, the case, it can be proved that he remains an American citizen. And when he says that he has uh, relinquished citizenship and that is not true, well, then he will have to go. They're talking in terms of impeaching Trump. They should think of impeaching this man far more than Trump. When I was last in the United States, I was in California, and I saw some of his dwellings that he has. They are not houses. They are mansions. He has not done a reasonable job in the United States. But what is more important is that there is no evidence that he has paid income tax. How did he, without paying income tax, collect as much money to buy a quarter of a house, uh, let alone three, in uh, the United States? That's a problem for Mr. Trump, 
and he will have to get moving and look at that. I mean, this man is a crook. Uh, the murder of Lasanta Vikramadunga, the uh, owner, editor of the finest newspaper in Sri Lanka, the Sunday Leader, the bloody footmarks lead to this man, the execution of people who had surrendered when the Tamil Tigers, the leadership surrendered, uh, police officer did not ring his commander. He rang Mr. Rajapaksa. And it's Mr. Rajapaksa who said that they are not taking uh, any people who are surrendered. He just executes them. And this is all documented. I'm not making this up because I don't need to because the facts are more worrying than anything that I can make up. Well, if uh, the Sinhalese people want a character like that as their president, they can certainly have him. The only thing that he has achieved, and that's a great thing, is that he has given the Tamils in the North and the East a very valid reason to ask for a separate state. Because the Tamils in the North and the East are not under the Sri Lankan government. They are under the Sri Lankan military, 99% Sinhalese, and the police, 95% Sinhalese. I think that they are capable of uh, finding a better leader than this character. I'm, I'm a Sinhalese and proud of it, but I, I can't see that the Sinhalese are that stupid as to appoint this guy or to vote for this guy. Why they did it, I don't know if they were bribed or threatened or what. He calls himself a war hero because he murdered so many thousands of people, not just the Tamil Tigers, but thousands of Tamil civilians. The Bishop of Menah, Bishop Rafu Joseph, uh, did the arithmetic and found that a far larger number of uh, people are, are simply missing. Tamil people are, are missing. They cannot be accounted for. And this gentleman, who was directing operations, uh, should know where they are. I think that Australia will have to open its eyes and realize that Sri Lanka is in a mess and open the doors for people to come here. Financially, Sri Lanka is fat broke. And appointing this character is going to make that situation far, far worse. They are looking at a failed state. Very sad, isn't it? The, it's uh, come to this. It's tragic. Am I surprised? I'm not, because with a crook like that, anything is possible. Some people are arguing that I was uh, wrong, that he will not be elected. I said, you must be mad. He will be. And, and if there's anybody who beats him at the election, that person's life will be, be in danger, as was Sarat Fonseca when he contested Rajapaksa's brother, older brother, Mahindra Rajapaksa. Thank you. Okay. And that's Dr. Brian Sinuratna, human rights activist for over 60 years, who now lives in Brisbane. He's been here for many years. Born in Sri Lanka, been in Australia for many years as a, a high-profile doctor and treated many of the refugees, who survivors of the Sri Lankan military, in his surgery in Brisbane. The place to be on Thursday the 28th of November is the MUA Hall in Ireland Street, West Melbourne at 6pm. It's to celebrate the 165th anniversary of the Eureka Rebellion when in 1854 
gold miners at Ballarat in central Victoria revolted against the colonial authority of the United Kingdom. To many, it signifies the birth of democracy in Australia, laying the foundations of Australia's social, industrial and political struggles, an important fighting tradition which continues today to inspire this fight today. At this year's celebration, there will be a number of speakers, dinner, drinks and comradeship. And with the four parts of the night, fighting for workers and democratic rights for a truly independent Australia, multiculturalism and solidarity of working people. Shirley Winter is a member of Spirit of Eureka. Shirley, how did Spirit of Eureka begin? Spirit of Eureka was launched on the 150th anniversary of the Eureka Stockade Rebellion. That was in 2004. But the reason for it is that it was our view that the struggle that started in 1854 by the rebels continues today and has identical, uh, you could say, identical demands that were put up by the by the rebels 164 years ago. I mean, is that view that uh, from the outset, Eureka Rebellion was actually class struggle? So you had many of the rebels were former convicts, or most of them were former convicts deported to Australia from England, Ireland, and Scotland. So many, you know, committed crimes of poverty. Many were political activists and agitators, and there were the charters who fought for rights and justice for workers in England and establishment of unions. There were Irish independence fighters, and there were those who took part in 1848 revolutions in Europe. So the Eureka demands that the Eureka rebels put up were quite far-fetched and quite political and actually quite advanced at that time. And you know, better known amongst them was Raphael Caboni from Italy, who was involved in 1848 revolutions. And he was one of the leaders of the Eureka Rebellion who penned that famous pledge of the Southern Cross is the refuge of all oppressed from all corners of the earth. And that was, we could say, that was the birth of multiculturalism in Australia. The fact that, that, that there were many, um, I think there were 22 nationalities involved, and that including there's, there was a, a couple of Jamaicans, Afro-Americans, the Italians, Spans, Spaniards, the Irish. So it was right from the uh, right from beginning, Eureka had a very strong the solidarity between peoples from different countries. So that continues that continues today. So it still has that relevance today. And they swore under the Eureka flag. They swore the the famous oath of allegiance, um, the pledge of we swear by the Southern Cross to stand truly by each other and fight to defend our rights and liberties and uh, burn their licenses. This continues right through the last 164 years. That sentiment, that spirit continues today, that solidarity, and it's just as relevant today as it was 164 years ago to define and they demanded the rights to uh, vote, abolition of their mining licences. And, you know, and there's, there's real echoes of it now in that whereas the rebels in 1854 fought against the, the oppression of the British aristocracy and the squatocracy, the wealthy squatocracy, who basically stole the land of the Aboriginal people, 
um, who oppressed the, the miners, they have been replaced. That section, what I call ruling class of the British aristocracy, and the squatocracy has now been replaced in Australia by the big mining corporations, the likes of Rio Tinto, the likes of Chevron, BHP, the likes of Gina Reinhardt and Twiggy, whatever his name is. And, and they are continuing to deny the, the first people, Australia's first people, the rights to their land. They continue to exploit the workers in the mining industry. And they continue, and they are very powerful in Australia in determining a lot of the laws, the oppressive draconian laws that deny workers and unions the rights, the dutiful rights. So what we're saying is that there is that continuity and the aims and objectives that the rebels had launched 164 years ago, they have not been fully recognised. And even, I mean, we've achieved the, the right to vote, which is, you know, the uni universal except for women, the right to vote. But, but if we look at Parliament now and, you, you know, the, this kind of beneath the surface of so-called parliamentary democracy, it's really who actually is behind making all the policies, parliamentary policies. It's the, again, again, it's the rich, it's the wealthy, it's the, you know, the mining industry, the Mining and Resources Council, the Australian Mining and Resources Council, which has and exercises enormous power over over the politicians and over Parliament. And Adani is just one of many of these sort of open stuck examples. So, so it's we've just replaced one section of the the feudal aristocracy and feudal and squatocracy has may have been replaced by big corporations that wield enormous power. So in many ways that struggle continues and the spirit of the defiance and struggle is... And one other thing that I think we sort of... and Spirit of Eureka has also has neglected and that is consistently promoting the involvement and the role of, of women in the rebellion on the goldfields and, and in the rebellion. So women were, not only did they sow the flag, but they also pledged the oath of allegiance. And they actually did take up arms and fought with the men at the stockade. And they were mainly hard-working poor women. Many of them were impoverished. And they were outraged at the British colonial authoritarianism and injustices. And they fought for justice and they fought for equality and they did fight for independence for women and we don't hear them the voices are silenced for you know for 200 years for more than 200 years the women have just been denied existence in Australian history you've mentioned the victory of the getting the vote but I'd imagine that over those years there have been a number of victories for the working people but we're seeing now those victories being pushed to the back that's right, and you, you're quite right. Yeah, you're quite right. I mean, those the vote was important, but there were the what the Eureka Rebellion had. It also laid the ground for for developing development of trade unions, and so you had the Eight Hours Day. There was one, I think, 1856. Two years later was the Eight Hour Day. There was one, and there was and and there was one again. The, the Eureka flag flew in all those campaigns and the marches that 
the stonemasons were initiating. And then right throughout this, uh, the, the second part of the 19th century, that's when the, the unions um, in Australia were established. And unions in Australia actually have a, a very militant history compared to other countries. And undoubtedly, the, that spirit of you that was born at, at Eureka had given the inspiration and, and encouragement. And then you had in 18... 1894 or the early 1890s, we had the massive strikes by the maritime workers and the, the shearers and there were others and the textile women workers. There were important gains that were made and the women textile workers, factory workers had actually won the eight-hour day and that was about the same. That, happened, that was in the 1880s and that was at a uh, at a time when the Textile Workers Union was being formed and most of them were women. And then, and then you had right throughout the 20th century the, the magnificent struggles by workers and unions where all this, you know, the rights, we'd never had the right to strike, but workers were st felt strong enough and unions felt strong enough to take industrial action and, and, and were taking strike action and won a lot of wage increases, improvement in conditions, in working conditions. They were involved in the, in spite of the laws, they were involved in a lot of the anti-war activities, opposition to the to conscription, opposition to the Vietnam War. They were opposed to the mining of uranium. They were really important, important victories, those rights. They've won the superannuation, they won the long service leave, we've won penalty rates. And they were all victories that were sort of built on that, on Eureka. And so the victories are there, and it was the, the spirit and the determination and solidarity that was, born, that was born at the 1854 Eureka Rebellion. And now a lot of these victories that we've won in the last 160 or so years are being basically taken away and are disappearing. So we need to revive that spirit of Eureka, of struggle and defiance. That's what, I guess that's what we try to do with the anniversaries. Well, one we haven't won yet is um, an independent Australia. We've swapped a British rule to American rule, and yeah. that's a big issue, isn't it? Oh, it's an enormous issue. It's an enormous issue. Is um, you know, Australia was colonised by Britain, it's British capital, and we were a colony. We went to the First World War. We were Australian soldiers, were pawns in what were at the time imperialist wars between Britain, Germany and France. We kowtowed to, to the British. We, we didn't have our own independent, well, we didn't have our own foreign policy. It was basically the British foreign policy. We didn't have our culture. It was mainly, you know, there wasn't an Australian people's culture. When the British colonial empire was declining after the Second World War, the, the Americans stepped in. So we just following, replacing one sort of foreign power, imperial power, with, with another imperial power. And we've got a situation now where there's huge investments in, in, in Australia, capital investments. So a lot of our industries are owned by either American or European or more or less or rather growing Chinese interests and that's resulting in the destruction of Australia's industries, loss of jobs. Our foreign policy is totally kowtowing and subservient 
to U.S. policies, and we called the deputy sheriff, the U.S. deputy sheriff in the region. So we host U.S. Marines, and we host the most important, significant U.S. spy bases. And on that theme, one of the key speakers at the Eureka anniversary is is Clinton Fernandez. And Clinton Fernandez is he's a professor of international and political studies, and he's written several books including most recently What Uncle Sam Wants, U.S. Foreign Policy Objective in Australia, and he's also written another book, Ireland Off the Coast of Asia. And he has meticulously researched and gone through WikiLeaks documents, the leaked WikiLeaks documents, and his books show how Australia's foreign policies are basically set in America to suit American preferences, and that's in his books. And he's written many articles on how Australia is privatising the profits and socialising the losses that foreign investment in Australia is um, creating a situation where, for example, our gas, Australia's gas, uh, which is now owned by some of the biggest multinational corporations, is um, shipped overseas and then imported back to Australia at a higher price. His books and his talk is going to, going to be about on, on the issue of, of Australia's foreign policy being subservient to the US, on the issue of our economic dependency. And one of the things that he's, I don't know if you've read it, but he's recently written an article on who owns the four major banks in Australia, the Commonwealth, ANZ, Westpac, NAB. And they're all basically foreign-owned. And the so-called Australian Commonwealth Bank is, I think, there's 60-65% ownership by American American capital. And they're the ones who set their genders. They're the ones who set their genders of how the money is being loaned and what is done with it. He's also involved in defending civil and democratic rights. He's a very vocal supporter of Julian Assange. And as I said, he... He's gone through through the WikiLeaks documents with a fine-tooth comb and, you know, based on that evidence, he's arguing that, you know, Australia needs to be independent, that we're basically, we've lost our sovereignty if we ever had it. He's also a very strong supporter of WikiLeaks-K and uh, quite involved in defending the sovereignty of Timor-Leste. That's the theme, or that's another theme that, that is, will be he will be addressing at the anniversary on the 28th of November. He's he's a very good speaker. All his um, presentation are back based on facts and well well researched. He was in the defence department, so he also has a very good background in understanding the way the the military operates in Australia's relationship to the U.S. military and the military industrial complex. The other speakers will be Joan Coxage, and most listeners, most of your listeners will be will know Joan, be familiar with her, and she's a long-time political, social justice, democratic rights and anti-war activist. She was one of four women who in 1966 set up a protest camp outside the Victorian Army barracks opposing the Australian involvement in Vietnam War and conscription, and that was the beginning, basically, delaying ground for enormous mass movement opposing the Vietnam War and the culminating in the in the moratoriums in 1970. She went on to become a parliamentarian, a very courageous and outspoken activist on many issues, including the dismissal of the Whitlam government, Pine Gap, US military base. 
She's done a lot of investigation research into and published on ASIO, the role of ASIO and the CIA. She's um, travelled to Pine Gap. There was a, in early 19, 1980s a big cavalcade of women to Pine Gap and she was one of the main leaders of that. She's done some amazing stuff, which some of it you'll hear. I won't reveal them now, but you'll hear about it at the anniversary. Look, her most enduring work, although she, you know, she was in Parliament for some time and she, was, she really used Parliament to advance the interests of ordinary people and of herself. And so her most enduring work was her continual involvement, grassroots in the mass movements, and more recently, she's been doing a lot of work in support of Cuba, Venezuela um, and Libya, opposing all the coups that are engineered by the CIA, uh, CIA and the US. And the final speaker is Dave Kerrin, and he also is probably quite well known to your listeners, and he's um, a long-time working-class and union activist involved in many, in many struggles, many blues for democratic rights, and also really fighting for Australian jobs and he's argued very strongly about the importance of Australia having its own, uh, having our own industries, our sustainable industries that provide sustainable jobs and um, lay the foundations, the basis for an independent Australia. This will be held, the anniversary will be held on Thursday, the November 28th, 6 o'clock at the MUA Hall at 4654 Island Street in West Melbourne. There's dinner. Doors open at 6pm. Dinner is from about 6.15 to 7 o'clock when the speakers start. People who want dinner need to book. Obviously, we need to for catering purposes. It's $20 for waged and $10 unwaged or concessions. There'll be people who know the MUA rooms, there's uh, a bar, so there'll be beer, wine, soft drink. We're also doing a raffle. It's a fundraiser raffle for the West Papuan Independence Movement. And the raffle, it's for the, the West Papuan Rent Collective, um, which is in, in the Docklands. We hope to raise sufficient funds to help out the independence movement in West Papua. So if people are interested, the contacts, you could either book through the Eventbrite, which is, was it, HTTPS colon dash dash eureka 165.eventbrite.com or you could email Spirit of Eureka Vic 3, that's one word, Spirit of Eureka Vic 3 at gmail.com or you could call us on 0476 234 232 or 0417 456 001. We're also on Facebook and we've got a, a website to the Spirit of Eureka Facebook which is also has a post with all the details, the booking details and about the event. I'd imagine it's filling up pretty quickly. Uh, it is filling up pretty quickly. Last year we had 145 who booked and uh, it was a very successful event. So I think as, as the, the attacks on working people escalate, the symbolism of Eureka and the inspiration of Eureka is taking more significance. So I think people are looking 
powerful ways to deal with, with this attacks on our democratic rights, on our sovereignty. And the other thing about Eureka is that the Eureka flag, it, it, it unites people. And I think that's one of the, the unities absolutely essential if we are going to, to defend and advance the interests of ordinary working people. Great, Shirley. And if you'd like to conclude with the oath. And the oath rings truth today more than ever, and which is that we swear by the Southern Cross to stand truly by each other and fight to defend our rights and liberties. And nothing is more relevant than this quote now in today's world and in today's Australia. So thank you, Jan. Thank you, Shirley. And from Shirley Winton to David Rovix. From every corner of the world, they came from all around. When in 1851 they struck gold upon the ground Every voyage was a long one Months upon the stormy sea Some to seek their fortune Others escaping slavery What they found on the gold fields Was ruled by brutish thugs Discrimination and taxation Mixed with swinging billy clubs The gold was getting scarcer And cops were getting worse the diggers burned their licenses and vowed to end this curse. They swore an oath beneath the Southern Cross. They'd stand together and break the license laws. From 20 different nations they gathered here as one in Ballarat beneath the Southern Sun. The crown tried to divide them giving preference to some. The diggers wouldn't have it. They said it's all of us or none. They built a stockade while the redcoats massed nearby and they heard the miners shouting, we're ready now to die. The rebel miners waited for whatever lay in store. And on one December morning in 1854, the redcoats attacked the camp. Dozens there would fall Amongst these brave gold diggers who'd risen to the call They swore an oath beneath the Southern Cross They'd stand together and break the license laws From twenty different nations they gathered here as one In Ballarat beneath the Southern Sun Things go their way But when 15,000 miners rallied a month later on the day The crown conceded everything All of their demands They'd want an end to license fees The right to vote and land So here's to Joe and Charlie Waller and the rest They drew the battle lines And put crown rule to the test The diggers may have lost the battle but they quickly won the day And those shots fired in Victoria Were heard 10,000 miles away They swore an oath beneath the Southern Cross They'd stand together and break the license laws From 20 different nations They gathered here as one In Ballarat beneath the Southern Sun They swore an oath beneath the Southern Cross They'd stand together 
and break the license laws. From 20 different nations, they gathered here as one in Ballarat beneath the southern sun. to Power from the Margins, 3CR's broadcast for International Day of People with Disability on 3rd of December. From 7am to 7pm, we'll feature BIPOC perspectives, live music, artists and discussions. For details, visit 3cr.org.au forward slash Disability Day 2019. Now the second part of the longer interview with human rights activist May Kotsakis, who was born in the Philippines but has lived over half her life here in Australia. We begin with May talking about the various sections of society which were working to bring down the dictator Ferdinand Marcos. What about women's movements to bring about the end of Marcos? Were they active? Yes, uh, women's movement was very active. The uh, Gabriela uh, is an international network was already founded. I think uh, Gabriela was founded early 1980s. They were the torchbearer of the, the women issues and also children's issues. Women are were very active until now because the movement believe that the country can never be free unless the women are free. Were you a member of Gabriela? When I was in the Philippines, I was not. But when I arrived here, I was a founding member of Gabriela. Well, you've got rid of Marcos, and then you've got a succession of presidents following him. Were mm. any of them any good? They were not as brutal as Marcos. But if you say good, in the sense of bringing the country into political and economic progress and uh, getting rid of corruption... None of them ever did that. So some are as brutal as, as Marcos, while Duterte is even worse. But the others are not as brutal, but still maintain the neoliberal policies, maintain the same policy, the same laws as under Marcos, except the martial law, of course. It did not improve the situation. Actually, the economic situation in the Philippines is deteriorating. The influence of the United States? The influence of the United States hasn't changed. It is the same, all the treaties and uh, agreements that was even before Marcos until now is getting maintained. The Filipino people has gotten rid of the, gotten rid of the uh, military bases in 1991, but now it's even worse because the United States influence and control is all around the Philippines. The United States military personnel can go anywhere in in the country, anywhere in the land. So they are not concentrated in a base or, you know. So it's even worse. The same, they, they have several agreements. They have the EDCA, the Visiting Forces Agreement. So it's getting worse. You left the Philippines when? In 1985. Why? I got married to an Australian citizen 
who was born in the Philippines, grew up in the Philippines, I didn't even know that he was an Australian citizen. He was also an electrical engineer. And when he lost his job, he was being sent to Sri Lanka. And he told his employer, if I'm going overseas, I might as well go to Australia. He came, and then we followed later. I didn't want to leave the Philippines. I was, I don't know, I was patriotic, or I don't want to live anywhere. Well, activists were educated to see that the influence of the American is very bad. How the foreigner like Americans uh, or America, how they have abused and oppressed the Philippines. And in the Philippines before, every white person is called American. <laughs> so and I'm not going to Australia, they are Americans. <laughs> anyway, but then, of course, my husband said that we have to follow. I had then, we had two children at the time. What was your activism when you came here? What did you look for? In the Philippines, when I was in the Philippines, the information was very much sort of, what do you call that, uh, baffled? Or I actually see the Philippines more, how it is, the state of the country when I was in Australia. From a distance. From a distance, yes. yes. First, the uh, the news wasn't that sort of controlled, you know, so we can we actually see it. And then we can have studies here and all that without any fear. Uh, we can have a sort of we gather because under the martial law of Marcos, it's not allowed to gather, to have group of people gathering in one area. So we found that it was quite easy here. And then we come across where we live. We used to live in, in Yarraville. There was a park there, a big park. One time, we went to the park with children, and we saw that there were Filipinos gathering. That organization was the first progressive organi- Filipino organization here in Melbourne, in Victoria, which is called Association of the Filipinos in Australia. Listen to what we're do- they were talking about, and we thought, oh, my God, I, we were like that before. So my husband and I, we were both activists. Then we were separated from our group, and then thought, oh, they were talking about, you know. So then we joined. So from 1986 onwards. There was a lot of problems over those years of Filipino brides coming to Australia and being abused by their Australian husbands. Was that an issue that you took up? In the 1990s, yes, there was that mail-order bride uh, sort of phenomenon. Because of the hardship, poverty in the Philippines, the lack of opportunity, then uh, people starting to look for other sort of alternative. And when that was, that became maybe one or several Filipinos came and then found out that they can marry, you know, Australians, that became very popular. And Australians also were going to the Philippines as tourists, and uh, many of them went there to look for wives, for, for a wife. So that becomes yeah, a phenomenon. When that organization, when we were member, there was a Filipino who was killed by her husband. We formed a group then, an offshoot of that organization. We formed a women's group, and then we started addressing those issues. We realized then, at the time, the, the family law at the time was not yet Chains. I think it was 1990s when you can call the police. You don't even have to introduce. You can hide your name and you know call the police. My neighbor is being bust by now. But before, no, the police will just ignore you. When we just 
early 1990s, the family law was not changed yet. It was really difficult for us being advocates and, you know, assisting, supporting the, the women who were victims of family violence. It was difficult. I was followed by the perpetrator once up to my house and threatened. Is this Gabriella in Australia or is this another organization? Before Gabriella was a form, that was another organization. We called the organization CIFED, Collective of Filipinas for Empowerment and Development. And then um, that was, um, that sort of didn't uh, continue. So we established Gabriella in 1996 and we continued the work. Yeah. Where does the name Gabriella come from? Gabriella Silang is a Philippine heroine during the time of Spanish. The Spain came to colonize the Philippines 1521, and they stayed in the Philippines up to 1898, almost for 400 years. Gabriela Silang was the, the wife of a leader, Diego Silang, and he also led the revolution against the Spaniards. We use the name, but then it is an acronym. Every letter actually has a meaning. So the meaning is General Assembly Binding Women for Empowerment, Leadership, and Action. And that's still for reform. Yes, writing? for reform, integrity, empowerment, leadership, and action. Yeah, so it is an acronym as well. And what issues are you involved in at the moment? Campaign for Against Family Violence is continuing, and that is one of the main campaigns that Gabriela does. And we are also advocates. We support victims. Uh, so we do education forums, because one of the most important thing that we realize is the women do not actually know they have rights. When they came in here to, to Australia, they didn't know that there are laws here that can protect them. They did not know that they cannot be like what they, they are always threatened by, the, by, by their husband that if they say anything or they get seek help or they do something that the husband doesn't like, they can be deported. So many women do not know that they have rights. So one of the challenges to us is to reach out to many women to educate them. So that is only one of the issues that we handle, the family violence. But there are also issues like discrimination, unemployment, or abuse by workers, abuse by agencies who, who, who brought uh, them here, and uh, the issues of the Philippines, because we believe that the problem that we encounter here, the root cause of that is in the country where we came from. Because if a migrant comes from a country which is first world, not the same as the, the Philippines, they are not treated like the way we were treated by, by some sort of Australians. So we always have to prove ourselves that we are excellent, you know, before we get respect. I experienced that because at work I was actually bullied by my staff. Twice I experienced it from different people. One, I had a staff who, you know, I was a supervisor. He, she told me that I'm not going to, to get an instruction from an Asian. She actually told me that. So we actually have several, you know, um, sort of struggles being here in a foreign country, although like in my case, I already call this home because I live here more than I live in the Philippines. But every now and then you still feel like they don't think that you are sort of quite equal. They would think that, ah, 
chicken noodle. <laughs> the organisation PASA, does that pick up some of those issues as well? Yes, uh, but uh, the major campaigns, though, that uh, PASA has sustained from the time it was formed in 2003 is the human rights in the Philippines. We have sustained that. But because human rights is not only about killings or harassment, actually, even the rights of the workers, so the workers' rights, even the rights of those um, the uh, people that are affected by the mining those that are sort of dislocated or lost their uh, means of living because of the, especially the big mining companies, the foreign mining. So we also take those issues because they are all human rights. Uh, human rights is very broad. So we, the PASA, continue to sustain all the campaigns and the advocacy for those. You know. And of course the Australian mining companies are there in force in the Philippines? At the moment, it's the, the license. The license was, uh, has, uh, has uh, terminated in June. This is Oceana Gold. Oceana Gold, yes. Uh, there are several, apparently there are three mining companies, including the BHP in the Philippines. They don't mine, but they are the buyer of the product of a big mine there. So the mine only exists because they, you know, they are the buyer. So there are several. But the Oceana Gold, the license at, was terminated, the end of the license in June. So the people maintained the barricade in the Philippines. And Oceana Gold has been using all forms to get back the license. But I think the last latest is until now, the license was not uh, renewed because of the protest, because, including the local government. The, the provincial governor actually is opposed to renewing the license after... Oceana Gold has reneged on its promises. The people realize that the disadvantage to the resident is much, much more than the advantage that the residents has, you know, experienced. So they, the officials realize that they don't need a mine there. And there's been quite a number of human rights abuses connected to that mine? Yes. The forced displacement is, is one of them. That's human displacement. rights? Yes. Uh, they lost their, uh, residences and, the depth of their living, of their uh, means of living, like they cannot fish on the river because the river is polluted. They cannot plant on the land because the soil, that, you know, the plant won't grow. And that is the major means of living of the people living there. They used to have the small mines, you know, the just the small mines. So they used to be able to get gold by mining, which is a sustainable mining practice. But with the Oceana gold, then they lost that. So they have no more, they cannot sustain their living. You're also involved with an international organization of people's struggles? Yes, the International League of People's Struggle. That was established in 2001. And uh, that is composed of now, I think, more than 300 organizations in different countries in the world, actually in different continents. It has chapters, country chapters and regional chapters. And Australia is one of the chapters. Australian chapter actually was formed in 2007. It is expanding and expanding because at the moment, that is the only, not maybe not the only, but the biggest and the most militant anti-imperialist formation in the whole world. 
we actually attended the sixth international assembly that was done in Hong Kong last June. It's really sort of very empowering to be around those people, you know. And uh, there were delegates from every corner of the world, and it is really sort of very empowering to hear them, you know. What can an organization do for the people on the ground, the people struggling on the ground? Oh, there are many things that Australians can do. Although, because the Duterte regime is very much, do not want any foreigner in their land. No, no wonder, because he doesn't want what the government is doing to be to be news around the world. But um, we continue to do campaigns, so Australians or non-Filipinos can support the campaign. First, of course, by coming to our event, and then they can write letters to different authorities, even to the person of the Philippines, the Human Rights Commission of the Philippines, to the Australian government. Now, our campaign So the Australian government is asking them to stop military aid to the Philippines because we believe that the military aid, since the human rights perpetrator are the military and supporting them, they are actually contributing, the Australia actually is contributing to the, you know, to the repression of the Filipinos. Are you aware of the extent of Australian involvement in the Philippines in the military sense? I am not very much, you know, oh, like, uh, say, say, if you say about quantities and uh, amounts. No, I'm not. And where they are and what they're doing. And, um, but to, there are several sightings, and they have accepted. The Australian government accepted that they have personnel there, and they said that because they are training the Filipino uh, military. So it was actually funny because when we wrote to the Australian government, PASA has uh, written to the Australian government several times every new department minister of the foreign affairs and trade, we wrote to them, like Marie Spain, we have written to to Minister Payne. And when, I think it was Downer, it was Downer actually who replied to us, he said that the role of the Australian personnel there was actually to train the Philippine military on human rights. So I thought it was funny. That means if they train the Filipino military in human rights, that is the training that the Australian military is giving to be so repressive, to be violent, to be so cruel. And one of the famous butchers in the Philippines, uh, a general called Palparan, was trained here in Australia. I dare say there's been a few trained here. Yes. Over the years. Yeah. Mm. Now, I believe you made a film with your husband. Oh, yes. Tell us about that, a full-length feature film. Yes. It's a full-length movie. It's actually almost two hours. How did that come about? It is a, a very progressive movie. It tells about the experience of, of a daughter of Filipino-Australians. The parents were doctors who came to Australia and live here and then uh, decided to go back to the Philippines to help the Filipinos in their struggle. Uh, well, they were aware of the situation in the Philippines, so they went there, and they went to the countrysides to help the, those revolutionary people and, and, the, the, and the country folks, train them on medicine, on how you know the, they use uh, traditional or um, about herbs and all that sort of thing. But then also with the scientific means of like operating and all that sort of thing. But they were 
killed by the paramilitary. So this is this daughter who was living here, also a doctor, was advised by the Filipinos here that that's what happened to her parents. So he went back to the Philippines to retrieve the body. She wanted to retrieve the body. She was, uh, she experienced the struggle of the Filipinos because they have to go to the village to retrieve the body. And that's the story. Yeah, the story. Is that film available anywhere? We haven't had a chance to actually show it here publicly or, you know, we, it was shown on very selected people alone. It's just so much, so much, you know, so much uh, sort of issues that we were addressing that we sort of forgot all about it. We have to actually show it. We have to recoup the cost because we didn't realize that making a film is so expensive. The cast, they were volunteers, but the actor, the actor and the actress, they, they were professional. So aside from us who are all uh, volunteer, we are just sort of, what you call that, uh, extras. And also the staff who made the film. We borrowed some money and there were actually several solidarity friends, Australian solidarity friends who are very generous. Some of them donated, some of them lent us money without any sort of term of when we can pay it. Not expecting any profit as well because we are not expecting any profit. So they actually, now I haven't spoken to them and tell them that, hey, we cannot pay you yet. <laughs> so. When we, we might, people will be able to see it. We are organizing a, a showing. Actually, we were hoping we can show it last winter, but because everyone was so busy, so we might actually organize uh, close to maybe close to Human Rights Day in December. So yeah, we'll we'll sort of announce and you know circulate the showing. Finally, mate, how often can you go back to the Philippines, and what do you see when you go back? So far, I. I'm able to go almost every year, go back to the Philippines almost every year. We have siblings there, my mom. We visit uh, our mother, who is already 95 years old. Actually, that's one of the reasons I went to the Philippines this September. It was her 95th birthday, last September 8th. You hear people on the street, of the difficulties. It's actually sort of, you feel like, you know, your heart bleeds when you see people on the streets and when you hear to their sort of stories especially now with this war on the poor actually one of the speakers at our forum in Pasa last October 18 said that there is no war on drugs in the Philippines because the drug lords and the drug the flow of the drug is not stopped there is war on the poor that is very true you listen to those victims it's really very, you know, it's quite difficult not to be affected if you hear their stories. You wouldn't go back to live there, would you? I would. I actually would like to live there. I was thinking that maybe we can do more if we are there. But what happened to Sister Pat <laughs> with the repression, it seems that we can do more here, <laughs> you know, than there. But you haven't regretted leaving. At the time, I had I had no choice, you know. I mean, it's quite difficult with, if my husband is here and we are in the Philippines. When I first arrived here, I used to cry. It was very sad here because we are in a big family. You don't know much of people. 
it was really sad. And then you feel like you're being seized up when people look at you. 1980s is still, did, uh, until now, I will, discrimination until now is still a right. But, but I love it here, though, because now we develop lots of friends. Lots of Australians support our cause, our struggle. We have lots of solidarity friends. And actually, it's actually sometimes embarrassing because we meet a lot of our solidarity friends who know more about what's happening in the Philippines than a lot of, of Filipinos, you know? Sometimes they've already read the statement of Joma, you know, Jose Maria season, and they would discuss it with me. I haven't even read it. I thought, oh, my gosh. It's sometimes it's embarrassing. Lots of Australians actually are very much aware of what's happening there, more than many Filipinos here. Any final words? Oh, uh, I would like to thank you, Jan, because we realize that education or letting the people know of what is happening is very powerful. And having a chance to talk on radio is actually very good. So I would like to thank... Now, I also would like to thank all our Australian friends who continue to support us, you know. Thank you very much. We will win. We will win. We will win. That's Philippines-Australian activist May Kotsakis. After a number of postponements, the people of Bougainville, currently an autonomous province of PNG, will begin voting on the 23rd of November for or against independence. On the line is journalist and researcher Nick McClellan. And Nick, before we look at the likely outcome of the vote, we need to understand the recent history of Bougainville, which explains why this vote is taking place. There's been a long debate over the status of Bougainville within the nation-state of Papua New Guinea. Bougainville is much closer to the Solomon Islands geographically and culturally, ethnic, ethnicity-wise. Um, the people of Bougainville have uh, closer ties to the western Solomon Islands than they do to people on mainland PNG. Obviously, Papua New Guinea is a very diverse country with over 800 language groups and uh, enormous differences between people from the Highlands regions, Papua in the south, uh, the New Guinea Islands in the north, and so on. And going right back to the time of independence in the mid-1970s, the people of Bougainville, the majority of the people of Bougainville, have wanted an independent nation. And indeed, when Papua New Guinea was formed with the merger of the two territories, Papua and New Guinea, as the nation-state, Bougainville you know, pushed for secession, pushed for independence in 1975. And PNG created a provincial government system over the next two or three years, and in large part, not completely, that was related to this call for independence, for secession, by the people of Bougainville who wanted their own independent nation back in the mid-1970s. And that call for independence has continued, not with everyone, but certainly with a significant part of the population of Bougainville, which has about nearly 300,000 people. It came to a head in the late 1980s, partly in response to the social, economic and environmental impacts of uh, the Panguna mine, which is one of the largest gold and copper mines in the world. Australia's been in there for a long, long time before that. Yeah, I mean, Australia was the colonial power um, after the First World War. German New Guinea and British Papua uh, were two different uh, regions 
of the uh, eastern half of the island of New Guinea. Uh, the Dutch obviously had the western part, which today is West Papua, under Indonesian occupation. The Germans set up a whole range of plantations uh, along the northern coast of uh, the mainland New Guinea and in the New Guinea Islands, places like New Island, uh, East New Britain and, uh, and Bougainville. So it had a fairly extensive plantation economy. But in 1914, obviously, Britain and Australia uh, moved against German interests in uh, New Guinea. And after the First World War, uh, under the League of Nations mandate, it came under control of Australia and eventually became the territory of Papua and New Guinea. 1975, Australia granted independence as Papua New Guinea. But Bougainville was always fairly well-developed part of the country, the PNG Highlands lacked a lot of infrastructure, a lot of education, a lot of opportunity, whereas the islands, because of the plantation economy, saw a lot of infrastructure, saw a lot of development. And so Bougainvillians were, at the time of independence, relatively well-educated, uh, with strong influence from the Catholic Church and other denominations, uh, had reasonable infrastructure compared to, say, some of the provinces in the highlands of Papua New Guinea, and had a plantation economy that had provided... Uh, opportunities. But it was what was firstly called CRA, Consig Rio Tinto Australia, uh, later known as Rio Tinto, the giant transnational mining corporation, that was involved from the earliest days in uh, exploration and then the development of the Panguna mine. And going back to the 1960s, under colonial control, PNG uh, uh, saw the development of what was one of the largest gold and copper mines in the world at Panguna, which is in a mountainous region of uh, uh, central Bougainville, the main island. The subsidiary of Rio Tinto, BCL, Bougainville Copper Limited, operated the mine for many years, and it was a crucial part of the economy of independent Papua New Guinea. It made up about 17% uh, at, at peak of um, uh, the national budget, and about 40% or 40% plus of export earnings for the nation-state of Papua New Guinea. So obviously, uh, with uh, Rio Tinto, a global transnational mining corporation involved, it was a big operation. There were, however, many social, cultural, economic, and particularly environmental impacts from the mine. And uh, over time, many Bougainvillians, uh, many young Bougainvillians, were critical of the deal that had been struck by their elders with Rio Tinto, with Bougainville Copper Limited. So you saw in the 1980s a younger generation, uh, late 1970s, early 1980s, a younger generation of Bougainvillians saying that the deal signed decades before by their elders with the, the mining company uh, hadn't really addressed a lot of the social impacts, hadn't guaranteed employment for Bougainvillians despite training programs run by BCL, and certainly hadn't fully addressed the environmental impacts. And there was a lot of pollution of the Java River and other locations from the mine. And so local landowners um, growing their own food and, and trying to live on their own customary land were facing environmental impacts while the perception was that most of the benefits of the mine were going obviously to BCL and its shareholders but also to the nation state of Papua New Guinea uh, which was earning mining royalties and revenues and so on far beyond what was going to local landowners or indeed to the provincial government. And this all boiled over in the mid to late 80s? That's right. There was a, uh, a new landowners association created, 
a woman named Perpetua Serrero was a key leader. Uh, and uh, because land ownership in Bougainville, in most cases, is matrilineal, passes through the women rather than the men, uh, the women's leadership at that time played an important role. And one of her relatives was a man named Francis Owner, who actually worked for BCL, but was increasingly critical uh, of these issues. And this younger generation, as I say, started to challenge the original deal that had been signed by their elders. Francis Owner and the and the the new Bougainville Land Association put forward claims to BCL uh, for $10 billion compensation, and they were laughed off by the mining company, but they didn't laugh for very long because... Um, a group of young militants eventually started to sabotage equipment and indeed the power pylons leading to the mine site, which is way up in the mountains. A series of clashes uh, evolved. The PNG police were um, sent in and with a level of brutality tried to crack down on people involved in this, uh, these sabotage and other activities. And the thing escalated from... Uh, 1988-1989 onwards uh, for nearly 10 years there was a, a vicious and brutal war um, because the police were soon supplemented by the Papua New Guinea Defence Force the PNG Army and Navy uh, that were sent in to try and put down the rebellion and the rebel groups soon took up arms known as the Bougainville Revolutionary Army basically shut down the mine and started operating in many other regions of uh, of Bougainville and the main island of Bougainville and also Booker and outlying islands as well. And the island was blockaded? A terrible time and uh, estimates range from some say 10,000 people, some say double that. Nearly 20,000 people died during the nine, nearly ten years of conflict. Um, the BRA was not only um, in conflict with uh, the Papua Guinea Defence Force but with uh, other pro-PNG uh, groups known as the Resistance. Um, so it was a fratricidal conflict as well as the conflict between Bougainvillians and uh, the PNG Defence Force. PNG was supplied initially by Australia in terms of its military support and logistics. There was a, a major problem because Australia had provided Iroquois helicopters and other military supplies to the PNG Defence Force, including uh, a patrol boat under the Pacific Patrol Boat Program, uh, those helicopters were supposed to be used for non-military purposes, particularly along the border with West Papua, because in 84 to 86, a lot of West Papuan refugees had come across the border from West Papua into PNG. But PNG refitted the uh, helicopters with gun mounts, and they were used uh, during the conflict to maintain a blockade and to uh, attack Bougainvillian villages that were supportive of the independence movement and the Bougainville Revolutionary Army. And so you had a, a very tight naval and air blockade to stop people coming across the narrow waters between the islands of the Western Solomons um, and Bougainville itself. It's a very narrow waterway, and people uh, during the conflict used to run fast canoes, motorised canoes, across uh, this very narrow strait that separates Bougainville from the main a group of islands uh, known today as Solomon Islands. And so not only were militants um, moving backwards and forwards, but also medical supplies were being uh, provided because PNG maintained a blockade, not only military, but also civilian supplies, medical supplies. Courageous people like uh, Sister Ruby Marinka and others were involved in providing uh, support to non-combatants 
many women and children suffered enormously uh, during the conflict. And there's a, a wonderful book named As Mothers of the Land, um, edited by uh, Marilyn Taleo Havini. As Mothers of the Land talks about the impact of women of this war, um, you know, the deaths, the rapes, problems with malaria, problems with children losing uh, educational opportunities and so on. So it was a, a bitter and ugly time. Thousands of people died or were killed. It took a long process of, of uh, reconciliation, indeed a process that's still continuing to this day, to try and bring back Bougainvillians to decide on the future of their country. And that's where this referendum comes in. Absolutely. In, in 1998, there was a, a series of negotiations which led to a peace agreement known as, not surprisingly, the Bougainville Peace Agreement, which was signed ultimately in 2001 between Papua New Guinea and Bougainvillian uh, political forces. The Bougainville Peace Agreement had a number of key elements. Firstly, of course, um, decommissioning a lot of the weapons uh, that were used. So over you know, the last nearly 20 years, there's been a process of people handing back their weapons and uh, to either be stored or, or um, uh, destroyed. There was the uh, process of reconciliation between people who'd been involved in the conflict and support for combatants, support for victims. But most importantly, there was the creation of a, a, an autonomous region within Papua New Guinea, uh, recognising this long call for secession from Bougainvillians, and the creation of an autonomous government in Bougainville. And the autonomous Bougainville government has been operating since 2005. It was elected um, uh, and is currently headed by John Momus as the president. Momus, a long-time PNG politician, former Catholic priest, and, um, you know, served in many places. He's been a, an ambassador for Papua New Guinea, but um, a, a long-time Bougainvillian leader. And Momus has been leading the Bougainville uh, Autonomous Government since that time, since 2005. The Bougainville Peace Agreement from 2001 also said that within 10 to 15 years of the election of the government, there should be a referendum on political status. And that's where we're at today. The creation of the autonomous government in 2005 add on 15 years, and the referendum had to be held by June 2020. And that's where we've come to the stage, after many long and tortured efforts, to have a referendum on Bill's political status. So starting just on the 23rd of November, just a week or so away, the process will begin where people are registered to make a decision about whether Bougainville should be independent or should have greater autonomy within the nation-state of PNG. It's not a yes-no question, do you want independence or not? It's a question, do you want full sovereign independence or do you want to maintain your status within PNG but with a greater level of autonomy over things like trade, foreign affairs and so on? The vote will be spread out over a couple of weeks uh, because it's a, a, a relatively difficult country to operate in, in, in the sense of uh, uh, getting polling ballot boxes out to uh, isolated rural villages, and uh, the vote will be there. Not the final decision, however. Yeah, I'll go on to that in a moment. I'd like to bring in Jerry Singerock, who's been in the news just recently. He was credited with helping to bring the crisis to an end. And then we have to look at sand lines as well and the fall of the government in PNG. 
the reason the peace agreement was created was because of the failure of the Papua New Guinea Defence Force to achieve uh, uh, military victory in the conflict with the BRA, with the Bougainville Revolutionary Army and with other armed groups in Bougainville. Um, it was essentially a military stalemate uh, for many years. PNG, as I say, was using Australian-supplied helicopters, Australian-supplied patrol boats, Australian-supplied ammunition for the war, but was unable to defeat the BRA, particularly in areas around the Panguna Mine um, and in other mountainous and rural areas, very difficult to operate. There was a, an essential stalemate. The then-government of Papua New Guinea under Prime Minister Sir Julius Chan sought to preempt this defeat by involving a mercenary group led by a guy called Tim Spicer. He was a former colonel in the British Army, had served in uh, Iraq and had set up uh, basically a, a, a guns for hire. Um, there's a couple of good books. Uh, Sean Dorney wrote a book called The Sandline Affair and Mary Louise O'Callaghan wrote a book called Enemies Within which exposed um, the, the Sandline crisis. The Australian government uh, intelligence found out that instead of relying on the Papua New Guinea Defence Force, that the Chan government was planning to hire these mercenaries using Russian uh, helicopters, things that they'd seized um, from Afghanistan and other places, um, with South African trained mercenaries uh, from the apartheid, uh, unemployed soldiers from the apartheid era, and that the you know through a sort of shock and awe campaign, armed with high-tech weapons and Russian hind helicopters and so on that Sandline, this uh, British mercenary company, uh, would basically launch an attack against Bougainville, wipe out villages, and achieve the military victory that the Papua New Guinea Defence Force couldn't win. When the Australian Intelligence Services found out about this, the whole plan was scuttled, and Jerry Singerock, the then commander of the Papua New Guinea Defence Force, was central in basically putting down the proposed plan by firstly arresting Spicer and a number of leading members of, of Sandline when they arrived in Papua New Guinea and then mobilising military forces and police and ordinary citizens to create a political crisis which saw the resignation of Sir Julius Chan. You know, that was really a tipping point and was, was pretty crucial in Australia switching support towards a uh, negotiated peace solution and New Zealand particularly took the lead in a series of meetings between different political forces within Bougainville and with the PNG government, PNG armed forces, through uh, three or four rounds of, of discussions and negotiations between um, 1996, 98 and 2001 that ultimately led to this peace agreement. Australia obviously worried that uh, uh, the PNG government was you know, trying to use mercenaries, which would cause enormous human rights abuses, much much worse, of course, than those already conducted by the Public Union Defence Force. Back to what you said a moment about the PNG government. They have to approve the results of this referendum? Yes. The, the referendum itself is not definitive. The Bougainville Peace Agreement uh, sets out a, a process where Bougainvillians will have their say, but their vote is not binding on the government of Papua New Guinea. The next step is that the two sides, the Bougainville government and the PNG government, will consult together on the next steps. There's 
also support from uh, uh, Bougainville Referendum Commission, uh, which is an independent body, which has nominees from both sides, from Bougainville and from PNG, and is headed by the former Irish Prime Minister, Bertie Ahern. Uh, there's a level of international involvement in this, just as there was in the peace process where the United Nations, as well as Australia, New Zealand and Forum Island countries were involved in the, the peacekeeping during the, the wind-down of the war. So there's a lot of international involvement from the United Nations. Uh, the UN Democracy Fund is uh, providing a lot of funding for the referendum. And Bertie Ahern, who was involved in the Good Friday Agreement in, in, uh, in Ireland that ended conflict between uh, Sinn Féin, the Republican movement, and the loyalist paramilitaries, uh, the DUP and so on, Ahern is bringing his Irish experience to solving this uh, problem as well. The vote starting on the 23rd of November will be crucial if there's an overwhelming majority, a really strong majority for independence, that'll put a lot of pressure on the PNG government to um, um, act on it. If the vote is, you know, 60-40 or something like that, it'll take the pressure off the PNG parliament because they'll be able to say, oh, look, there's still a lot of Bougainvilleans who want to stay with us, and, and, and so there'll be a lot of manoeuvring. And there's potential for, for, for tension, um, potentially even conflict, if PNG ignores the overwhelming vote. I haven't been to Bougainville recently, but by people I've spoken to on the ground and uh, colleagues uh, like Ben Bahain, a good photojournalist who's been there doing a lot of work this year, have said that there's a very strong sentiment for independence. This has been uh, around since the 1970s, and it's likely that, um, that uh, there'll be a pretty strong vote for independence. But how strong is the question? Simply because it's up to the PNG government then to consult with Bougainville about whether there should be full sovereign independence. There's indications that a significant number, not everyone, but a significant number of PNG politicians in Parliament don't want independence. Uh, they worry that there'll be a loss of economic support. They'll worry that it might start other provinces to get the same idea, and so on. There's been a change of government in PNG this year. Long-serving Prime Minister Peter O'Neill lost power and has been replaced by his former Finance Minister James Marape. Um, O'Neill was vehemently opposed to independence. Marape, I think, is still opposed to independence, but has certainly been more open to allowing the process to unfold. And that's important because it gives the chance for the Bougainvillean people to have their say about whether they stay within PNG with increased power or whether they become an independent country. You know, the O'Neill government, for example, even though it was obliged under the Bougainville Peace Agreement to fund the transition towards this new uh, status and particularly to pay for the referendum, they dragged their feet even up until last year in terms of not providing the funding to allow the development of the electoral role, you know, determining who could vote, um, not providing the money for the education campaign that's obviously vital in a country. You know, Radio Australia's gone, uh, um, doesn't have shortwave broadcasting capacity. Uh, there's a small radio program uh, station in Booker, New Dawn, which does a wonderful job, but uh, there's still a need for a lot of community education about how this process will work, what what happens if you vote yes for independence, what comes next, all that sort of work needs funding. And PNG government refused, dragged its feet to provide that funding under the O'Neill government. Marape, although, as I say, I think he still wants 
Bougainville estate within PNG has been more open to supporting the process and certainly provided the funding that PNG was obliged to fund under the agreement to get this process uh, rolling. There's still, even just days away from the referendum, still a lot to be done in terms of logistics, but uh, things are moving. Once the people of Bougainville have spoken, this process is going to continue for, for some time. The elephant in the room, Nick, an island sitting on 50 billion of gold and copper. Yeah, look, the Panguna mine was at the start of the conflict, um, uh, was central to the, the debate about Bougainville's economy, Bougainville's political status, and that continues. BCL for a long time was left with a stranded asset. Uh, the mine couldn't open and people known as Mekamui, the region around, uh, the, the mine that claimed, uh, control of the mine didn't want the mine to reopen and so for many years it's been mothballed it's still closed there's been a, a long debate about whether Panguna should reopen to provide the economic basis for an independent and sovereign nation as you say there's 50 odd billion dollars worth of uh, uh, mineral resources still there to be exploited it would however take some time some years to get the mining out of mothballs has been closed since the since 1988, essentially. Um, so there's a lot of work to be done to get the mine up and running and would need massive capital investment before there'd be returns um, for any investor to do it. But there are a lot of countries who uh, companies who've been uh, expressing interest. Uh, one major firm, RTG Limited, has been working overtime uh, to try and persuade landowners and the Bougainville government to reopen it. There's been a lot of complex manoeuvring by John Momus, who for a long time was pushing for the mine to reopen, recognising that uh, his new government would need economic support to build an independent nation and to rebuild still a lot of the infrastructure that was damaged many years ago during the war. Other companies have now stuck their head up, the UCL still floating around. There's even suggestions that the Chinese uh, have expressed... Uh, and that if Bougainville was to be an independent nation, um, that the Chinese mining company might come in. Many community groups, uh, churches and so on, have argued that Bougainville's economy would be better served by prioritising things like uh, better fisheries and agriculture. Cocoa production, uh, Bougainville produces beautiful cocoa that's used by chocolate manufacturers, so there's a real potential to explore that. And a report put out by... Um, uh, the Jubilee Foundation uh, last year it was a really interesting look at uh, non-mining opportunities for the economy that would provide a lot more employment for young people than mining will ever do. And so there's a whole debate about what sort of economic advantages are there, but there are certainly sharks circling, and you've got companies like RTG, uh, like uh, Catalyst and others trying to link up with key parts of the Bougainvillian elite to talk about exploration and mining, whether at Panguna or in other parts of Bougainville, which has uh, other mineral resources uh, in many other places around the, the group of islands. Finally, Nick, we have to remember that the people were never compensated for the loss of land, the loss of life and the environmental damage. No, look, there's a, a, a real history around the adverse effects of mining in PNG, not just in Bougainville, but when you think about what happened with Octedi and the pollution of the Fly River 
the destruction of environment, fisheries, economies, livelihoods for people living downstream of the, the mines. You know, there's a, a tendency for uh, mining companies to develop tailing dams and then to walk away when the, uh, the economic benefits start winding down. This is a, an issue in Australia, as we've seen, with the, the rights of Indigenous peoples who want the potential economic development that mining can bring in a community in terms of provision of health services, better roads, internet access and so on. But um, it's often those communities who bear the costs, and particularly environmental costs, that mean massive amounts of remediation. This is going to be complex, and within Bougainville there's uh, a whole elaborate process that's trying to reconcile people who faced uh, a quite bitter division by the conflict of the 1990s. Um, just in the last few weeks, there's been uh, major reconciliation ceremonies held, uh, not just in Bougainville, in Arawa, one of the main cities on the, uh, the main island of Bougainville, but also at Kokopo, which is in East New Britain province, where members of the Papua New Guinea Defence Force, including former commander Jerry Singerok and uh, former Bougainville combatants from the resistance or from the Bougainville Revolutionary Army, have come together as they say, to break bows and arrows. There's a symbolic uh, snapping of arrows in half uh, as a symbol that people want to end the conflict, want to recreate community harmony and create a a process of apology, compensation and reconciliation after, you know, often fratricidal conflict within communities. People planting trees together, coconut palms, to symbolise an end to the, the conflict, but also... Uh, reconciliation over the wrongs that were committed and the, the many human rights abuses uh, committed during the, the, the war that saw thousands of people die. You know, that's a very Melanesian part of the process, despite what's written on paper. It's also about that very human process of rebuilding a sense of community and coming together to discuss what comes next. So I think, you know, we're at a really important stage It's also worth remembering, as we've talked about on this program many times, that this is not the only self-determination struggle across Melanesia. New Caledonia had a referendum on self-determination last November, and under the Noumir Accord, which is in some ways the model for the Bougainville process, the Noumir Accord put off its referendum, and there's uh, due to be another referendum in September next year, September 2020. Um, And as we know, there's also... uh, a major campaign for independence in West Papua. These are seen as the provinces of Indonesia, of Papua and West Papua by the Indonesian government. But there's been a long-standing self-determination struggle in West Papua and uh, many forces calling for full independence and another referendum. So this question of self-determination is very much on the regional agenda, although it's obviously uncomfortable for uh, countries like Australia particularly because many Bougainvilleans remember Australia's role in providing military support to the Papua New Guinea Defence Force at a time that that significant human rights abuses were being conducted by the PNGDF. Thank you, Nick, once again. Thanks very much, Jan. And that was Nick McClellan speaking about the upcoming referendum on Bougainville, which begins this weekend and, as you said, it goes for a couple of weeks.